I suppose you knew that Mitch was not preaching when you saw the pulpit here today. <laughs> when I came in on Saturday to bake some of this bread that you're seeing, the chair was here and the table and I sat down and tried to imagine myself preaching that way and I just couldn't do it. So brought out the old standby. Well, good morning to you. I'm Dan Olson. I'm an elder here at the church and every once in a while I have been given the opportunity to preach to you. And I really enjoy those opportunities and I'm hoping that you would feel the same way. Now when we've been together in these opportunities, we have been looking at the book of Exodus and marking how Israel became free, was led out into the desert. And this last opportunity I had to preach, we talked about manna. Now it was supposed to be a two-part event. The first sermon was supposed to be on February 14th and the second one on the 21st. And if you remember, just those four or five months ago, we had a foot and a half of snow on the 13th and we canceled church on the 14th. So we've already done the sermon on, on manna in the wilderness and today we're doing that second part about Jesus being the bread of heaven. Now, perhaps, and I'm really hopeful, perhaps you can smell the bread being, being baked. Is that possible? Can you smell it? Hallelujah. <laughs> I baked bread in here yesterday and I could not smell it standing 10 feet away from the thing. So, <laughs> But for some reason today, maybe the airflow and all you, you people moving around, we can, we can smell it. So I just want to warn you that the bread maker on the left, the white one, has about 10 minutes left. And it will beep when it's done. But it's a very quiet beep and it will only interrupt us briefly. Okay. Uh, if you remember, manna means, what is it? So when it first fell like frost around the camp, the Israelites went out and they went, what is it? And that became its name. It could be gathered and stored. It could be made into various dishes. It says that it could be boiled, it could be baked. What it could not do is it could not be kept overnight. If you decided, well, I'm gonna gather enough for two nights, when you woke up the second morning, it had worms in it and it stank. And so you had to learn to do it one day at a time, except for the sixth day of the week, which for us would be Friday. That day you could gather, in fact you were expected to gather two days worth because if you went out on the Sabbath morning to get the manna, it wasn't there. So this is some pretty amazing food that knows what day of the week it is. Well, no, it isn't the food. It's the God who gives it. But it's amazing stuff. It doesn't last, it does last. And the amazing thing is, is it followed the people of Israel around the Sinai Peninsula, wherever they were, and it followed them around for 40 years. 
Now, some of it was kept in a container in the temple as a reminder of the miracle. And we're told in Joshua chapter five, verse 12, that it ended on the day that the people of Israel entered into the promised land and ate some of the produce of the land. I also believe that scripture shows us that the people began to loathe the stuff. And they began to take it for granted. It stopped being a miracle and it started being something that they expected. Now think about this. If you are under the age of 40, you would have eaten nothing but manna your entire life. Just think about that. Every day, manna would be part of your diet. Now, I think we can relate to that. We have cars, millions of miles of roads to drive them on. Is that a miracle to you anymore? Now, maybe you own a vehicle that's a miracle if it starts. I don't know. We have microwaves, ovens, stoves, we have computers, we have cell phones, we have air travel, we have warm homes, we have cool homes. You could get the scripture in the Bible, in an actual book, or you could whip out your cell phone, you could take a tablet, you could use your computer. There are all kinds of ways to get access to scripture. You could probably even turn on some of the greatest preachers that we have today and listen to them. And yet, here you are today. So I appreciate that, thank you. Maybe you didn't know you were being ambushed. Jesus called himself the bread of heaven and it's in John chapter six and we're going to actually spend quite a bit of the rest of our time today in John chapter six. It starts out with the miracle of him taking five loaves and two fish and feeding 5,000 men and probably three times that number of women and children. And in verse 11, as we're going to read here in just a moment, it says that having given thanks, it's interesting that the words that he probably actually used were, Blessed are thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who bringest forth bread from the earth, because that was the typical uh, blessing that was spoken every time they broke bread. The Lord's Supper that we're going to be doing today has an element of bread representing the body of Christ that was broken on the cross for us and we eat of it regularly. We do that to remember the physical presence of Christ on earth who actually died for us and was a propitiation for our sin. And we're made right with him by that one-time sacrifice. But it's been a little difficult, hasn't it, these last few months? Focusing on the bread when you peel off the top and you have that substance on the top. It's sort of bread, it's sort of styrofoam, it's, it's a bread-like substance, I guess, is the best that you can say. Well, today we have the opportunity to actually use bread, and we're going to celebrate that today. Now, unfortunately for us, bread has kind of become a sideshow. 
When you go to the, go, go to the restaurant and you say, well, I'll have the, uh, the egg scramble, what do they say? Uh, what kind of toast? And so then they give you a list and you go, uh, I'll have sourdough. Now, when I was growing up, and I kind of hate to admit this, but TV was sort of in its infancy. Anyway, it was emerging from its infancy. I was really, really young. I remember a commercial for Wonder Bread. Wonder Bread built strong bodies 12 different ways. And I immediately began to pester my mom. You've got to buy Wonder Bread. I want Wonder Bread because I want to have a strong body. Now, isn't that amazing? 65 years ago, and I still remember the claims for Wonder Bread. How about that? That's the power of advertising, isn't it? Well, do you have memories of your grandmother making bread? That was the intent behind having this bread baked today, so that it evoked that sense of, of feeling towards bread, because really, it's an art. The, the water has to be an exact temperature, and I'm gonna admit to you that I guessed. <laughs> Felt the container and went, well, that feels like about 100 and something. That ought to do. So maybe you can see that the loaves are different sizes. I don't know how that happened. But baking bread, really, in our society has almost disappeared as something that is done in the home. It's turned into something that you put in a machine and the machine does all the work for you. So it's interesting to me that when you study history, everything that's happened is very clear. And yet, when you're in the middle of something, like this last 15, 14 months that we've gone through, things are not clear. And I have every expectation that in about 10 years, maybe 20 years, somebody's gonna say, how could they not know? It, it's so obvious. But that wasn't how it was for us. And I think that's the same way it was for the Israelites when they were out in the wilderness and they experienced this lack of bread. And it says they started to complain. They started to grumble against Moses. I think it's because they had been slaves. They had not had to provide for themselves. Their masters provided for them. They maybe made it, they maybe baked it and cooked it, but somebody else brought it to them and, and, and provided it. Now in Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, Moses warned the people as he was, the whole book of Deuteronomy is a recounting of their experience in the wilderness. And he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And you recall, Jesus used that verse in the temptation when Satan tried to say, oh, just turn these stones into bread. And Jesus said, no. Man doesn't live by bread alone. It's by the words of God that come out of his mouth. So let us spend some time reading the words of God today. We'll, we'll be in John chapter six and we'll read verses one through 15. So if you wanna follow along, 
grab whatever you use, the tablet or the phone or the Bible or whatever. They're all the Bible, it's just on different platforms. And let's read together. John 6, 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the bar five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is, come into the, is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Expectations, we all have them. An expectation is your view of, of the world, how it is or how it should be, out of which we frame all of our decisions and experience all of our feelings. Many times they arise from our upbringing. So in conversations, you ask somebody about their expectations and they talk about what they saw or didn't see when they were growing up. I know for me and my, my, my parents' generation, my parents were born in the 30s, which was a time of great uh, deprivation in our country. And so they were the kind of people who made use of everything, didn't throw things away easily because you never knew. And that expectation rose out of what they experienced. These expectations exert tremendous influence. Was that the bread? Yeah. All right. So when our expectations are met, we have a sense of fulfillment and everything seems right with the world. But when our expectations are not met, things just don't seem right. And this can be true not only of individuals, it can be true of groups of people and nations of people. 
And it's a very important part of the passage that we just read, but it's kind of in the background, so let's, let's dig a little and bring it out. In 333 BC, Alexander the Great conquered much of the known world, and that was the Mediterranean and the regions around it. And this included Israel. The Greek method of incorporating nations that they had conquered was to require them to become Greek. So you had to speak Greek, you had to think like a Greek, you had to govern like a Greek, you had to have the Greek customs, and you needed to worship like the Greeks. And since the Greeks had a pantheon full of gods, they came to Israel and tried to impose this on the people. It didn't work very well. Now in 323, Alexander the Great died at the age of 33. And his kingdom was divided up among his four generals. And these four generals fought amongst each other and made life miserable for the world, realistically. And there's a period of time in Israel called the Maccabean period. Have you ever heard that before? The Maccabees are three books in what we call our Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are books that weren't considered to be scripture, but they are of historical value. So our Bibles probably don't contain them, but they are in some versions of the Bible. And so in the Maccabees, you read about the struggles that the people of Israel had, how the Greeks tried to force them to do the things that meant being Greek. The Greeks went so far as to sacrifice a pig on the altar of the temple in an attempt to desecrate it so that the Jews could not use it, could not worship, in an attempt to force them to become Greek. And then the Roman Empire began to rise. In 192 BC, they defeated Antiochus III of Syria and completely defeated the remnants of the Greek nation in 148 BC. So from that time on, Israel was dominated by Rome. Now Rome's desires were completely different. They really didn't care who you worship. They really didn't care how you governed. What they did care about was taxes. They wanted taxes to be collected and they were usurious taxes. They also were very interested in making sure that you did follow their few rules that they had. And so if there was an uprising or a desire to try to throw off Rome, then you would expect to see the Roman legions coming up over the hill to wipe you out. And the atmosphere that this created at the time of Jesus was understandably one where people were tired of this. It had been over 150 years. They were tired of it. They didn't like to pay taxes. They wanted to be free. And in their scriptures, they had been promised that there would be a political leader called the Messiah who would come and set them free and establish Israel as the highest of all nations. Some of that's found in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19. 
Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible when you start from the very front. So Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19 says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so this hope of the Messiah, this political leader who would free them from the yoke of Rome began to be a very popular belief. It was the expectation of Israel that that would happen. Now, in many ways, that expectation is what enabled them to get through this difficult time. They would always remind themselves that Messiah is coming. We need to be prepared for Messiah. He's going to set up this great nation. We've, we can count on it because it's in our Bible. We know it will happen. So the only trouble they had was trying to identify who is the Messiah. Now the problem was that from time to time, hot-blooded young men would rise and identify themselves as the one. And they would rise up just enough to be noticed by Rome and then Rome would send out their soldiers, capture them, execute them in horrible ways, and then life would go back to normal. We actually have some examples of this in our scripture. It's in a speech by Gamaliel. It's in Acts chapter five, verses 33 to 39. This is what we read. When they heard this, this is the Sanhedrin, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. That's Peter and the apostles. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you do about these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so they took his advice. And that's why verse 15 in our text is so important. It's so pivotal here. It says that Jesus, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountains by himself. We know that Jesus was the Messiah. He is the Messiah. 
but they were trying to do what Satan had tempted him on the mountain. Bow to me and all of this will be yours. So it presented Jesus with a neat little problem. How do I turn the hearts and minds of these people away from that expectation and turn it to what God is doing in the present? So in our chapter, chapter six, which is 72 verses, that would have been a big chunk to try and, and, and do the whole thing. So I'm, I'm skipping over the story of Jesus walking on the water. Not because I don't think it's a great story, but it's, I just need to move on. So after that brief story there, we find Jesus in the synagogue in Capernaum. And it's there that he begins to instruct them and to correct their view. And he does this by referring to manna. Do you see the connection? Boy, we went a long way to get there. But that's the connection today. So Jesus declares in some startling ascending order, he, he starts talking about himself as manna. So he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Now, you and I hear that and this is what we see. We see bread because that's what it is. But when he said it in a synagogue, they heard manna. They understood that he was referring to himself as the bread that came from heaven. And since that was the main point, he repeats it again in verse 38 when he says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then in verse 40, he says, it is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now that, that's the gospel. We've heard that our whole lives. And so we're not shocked like the people in the synagogue were when they heard this. Jesus declaring that he was the manna that came from heaven Okay, that's, that's kind of a preacher thing, I guess. We'll, we'll allow that. But then the very next thing he says is, I have come down from heaven. The hearers there would go, wait a minute. Only God lives in heaven. And our scriptures say that, hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord is one. So what is he saying? And then he goes so far as to say, it's the will of my Father, calling God his Father, that everyone who looks on the Son himself and believes in that Son will have eternal life and he will raise them up on the last day. This was radical stuff. And they were having a really hard time understanding it. And it says that they began to grumble among themselves. Do you know what sotto voce means? It's kind of under your breath. You don't really intend for somebody to hear it, but you say it out loud. I found myself doing that every once in a while at, at a movie. Oh yeah, as if. <laughs> and it says that he heard them. He understood what they were saying. And what they were saying was, 
how does he say, I have come down from heaven? So Jesus restates it. He escalates it. In verse 48, he repeats, I am the bread of life. Now in the Old Testament and sometimes in the New, when you repeat something, it is an intensification. Okay, so when uh, Isaiah is called and he sees the Lord in the temple and the cherubim are above the temple and they are crying out what? Holy, holy, holy. Not because they forgot it, but because this intensification just tells you that this is the presence of God. We see it in the New Testament where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, by repeating it, it intensifies it. Maybe your version says verily, verily, but it's the same, same kind of thing. So he explains that he is the bread from heaven, the bread of life from heaven. And in verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then in verse 53, and this is where it really got tough for the people who were listening. In verse 53, he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now that statement isn't particularly pleasant for us, but it was horrifying, revolting for the hearers in that synagogue because the, the, the law specifically says you do not drink blood. And yet Jesus says to them, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. And then he says in verse 57, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds of me, he also will live because of me. Like I said, it's hard for us to hear what they were hearing. But the, the act of eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Christ clearly is not a physical act. And even those people, I think, understood that. But just the idea of consuming flesh and blood was, it, it rocked their world because this is not what the Messiah is supposed to be. He's supposed to be a conquering hero and you're telling me he's gonna be food? So Jesus began that process of correcting. And you, you know when you've read the Gospels that when he said to the disciples that he was going to Jerusalem and when he got there, he was going to be killed. That the, the Romans were going to put him on a cross and crucify him and he was going to die. And what was their response? No, 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 may it never be. Because they didn't understand. So just like this miraculous bread of heaven that was given over 40 years while the 
people wandered in the desert. Jesus is the bread of heaven given by God for us for eternal life, for all who will eat of it. And that's a promise that holds true for us today. So with this fresh bread smell wafting around in here today, it it, it was my hope that this would invoke in you a visceral desire to eat it. That's kind of how it works, right? We smell really good fresh bread and we want to eat it. And that's the image that Jesus is using. So when Moses proclaimed that man does not live by bread alone, but he lives by every word that comes from the mouth of of the Lord, he was explaining something that we need to know today. That it is not the act of eating that he's talking about. It's It's the taking in of the life of Jesus in a very real way. Now, I don't know what your expectations were when you came to church today. It's something that God does in each life, and he moves in mysterious ways, and you may not even be really aware of them. And yet, they're there, and they're framing your experience and your understanding. But perhaps today, instead of being well, you're hurting. Today, perhaps, instead of being Uh, eager in looking towards the future, you are fearful. Maybe something that happened in the past is weighing you down and you just can't get free. Well, that bread of life is for you because it exceeds and it defines our expectations in new ways. Now, in just a few minutes, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And while this passage is rarely cited as a source for communion, it is yet the understanding of this ordinance of communion. So the elements that we have are bread, and then we use grape juice as well. but they represent vitally, something that's vitally important in our Christian life. And the bread represents the actual body of Christ, broken for us, nailed to a cross, bearing our sin. This was something that they couldn't have expected, that they couldn't have understood because they were looking for that Messiah who would set them free. And yet Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so there is the bread representing the physical body, the actual body of Christ. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, this same John in an epistle says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So the act of eating the bread represents that spiritual appropriation of the life of Christ into our life. In many ways, it is a mystery, and yet it is as simple as the act of eating. The cup that we'll partake of represents the blood of Christ. We're told in the book of Hebrews that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sins. That's in Hebrews 10, verse four. And yet, the blood of Jesus shed on the cross of Calvary covers our sins and makes us stand in the presence of God as forgiven, whole, clean, right before him. That's so much better than being free from paying taxes. That's so much better than having a a country where you are free to live. Jesus promises that those who eat of that bread and drink of that cup will be with him when he raises them on that last day. These are our core beliefs. 